Welcome back, everybody, to the Lockdown Red Wings podcast for Wednesday, March 23rd, 2020. I am Detroit sports writer Nolan Bianchi, flying solo on the hosting front today as Ethan uh, is unable to make it work with the circumstances that were placed, uh, he was placed under due to the little lax government shutdown. I don't know if you'd call it a a total shutdown, a stay-at-home order. Uh, But we have, for the third day in a row, a terrific guest from a terrific newspaper. For the third day in a row, we're giving you guys a little something different than the day before. Uh, So now, to join us for Red Wings Rewind on Game 4 of the 1997 Stanley Cup Final, it is Detroit News columnist John Neo. John, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Nolan. Uh, so you were covering the team at this time. I, I read your get to know me piece on the Detroit news yeah. or, uh, at debtnews.com. If you haven't gotten a chance to read that, I would highly recommend it. Um, but yeah, I mean, what, let's just, uh, when did yeah. you start covering the wings? What, uh, how did, how did everything? Yeah, so I jumped aboard uh, at a pretty opportune time. I, I started the news um, really early 2006, basically. And uh, or really end of, 2005 or end of 1995 um so just in time um shanahan trade and 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 the season that became um you know sort of the precursor to the championship years there in 96 97 i started uh on the beat cindy lambert was the news's uh beat writer and i sort of became her backup uh, colleague on the on the beat and obviously the wings were the the hottest thing in town at the time coming off the 95 sweep and everything else, uh, in the finals, the loss. And, um, you know, it was a crazy time, but, um, you could tell, I mean, setting records in terms of wins in the regular season. And then 96, 97 was just, it got up to a little bit of a slower start. Um, and obviously there was everything that had happened the year before with Chris Draper and Claude Lemieux and, um, all of that started to build to a crescendo and you had the brawl in March, which was an epic, you know, epic night in this town's sports history. Um, and then, you know, the, the 42 year drought ending at the end of that season was just, I mean, it's something can count a few different moments in sports in this town on one hand stand out. And that one's at the top of most people's list, I think. Yeah, so Game 4, June 7th, 1997, as you just mentioned, uh, a 42-year cup drought. The Red Wings head into Game 4 with a 3-0 lead on the Philadelphia Flyers. Before we jump into that, I think uh, you touched on some interesting points. You mentioned the brawl. You mentioned Colorado. Mm -hmm. And we should talk about how they got there because they had a a bit of a film-esque arc if you think about it you know they get swept in the 95 (laughs) finals they're eliminated in 96 by the avalanche in the series that the rivalry kind of takes off with the hit on draper there's a storyline of the captain who can't get it done then they gain vengeance on the big bad avalanche the president's trophy winners i mean you know what was it like watching this team make this journey yeah and i mean at the time you, you could sense it building for sure, and they could too, I think. But it was that night, sort of everything coalesced that night at the Joe, March 26th, you know, and date, date that will live in infamy for, for uh, Red Wings fans. We had actually, at the news, we, we had had an inkling. Um, that score hadn't been settled, you know, and mm. it's been well documented. And we had an inkling that something might would could happen that night and actually the morning of that game um 
the Detroit News front of the sports section was a wanted poster. Claude Lemieux, our sports editor, Phil Lachure at the time, had the idea with some others. And um, like great. we, you know, some hints had been dropped and um, and sure enough, you know, just circumstance. It was just silly, the circumstances, the way it all played out. The fact that it was, you know, the, the least, the person you'd least expect helping spark the, the brawl and then Darren McCarty seizing an opportunity to, to exact his uh, payback on, on, for his friend Chris Draper on Lemieux at center ice there. Um, but yeah, that was the night where they came together as a team and really felt like they had uh, overcome that, uh, overcome the avalanche that they were, that they would eventually when the time came and they needed that. They all agreed about that later on. Um, so then, it, then once the playoffs started, and it was this way for most of the ring, the wings, you know, Stanley Cup runs. Is there was a moment early on where you thought, man, they just aren't going to do it again. Um, you know, St. Louis series was tied two-two. Iserman um, makes his speech, and then they start finally rolling after that. But um, once the finals got there, they they just, I think, among themselves, felt like they were unbeatable, and they were yet they were still sort of the underdogs going into that series against the Flyers, you know, the, the Legion of the Legion of Doom and um, Lindros and company. And, and it, it just, they just dismantled it. Um, you know, it was, it was funny. Scotty Bowman with all of his games and mind games and strategy and everything else, he throws the grind line out against, um, you know, Lindros and which threw them for a loop, but also exerted, you know, exacted a toll on that on that top line for the flyers at the same time sort of reverse psychology if you will i mean he he had he had this dominant defenseman physical defenseman vladimir konstantinov who naturally you would assume would be out there on the ice against lindros's line and and he wasn't he he went with a finesse pairing of lidstrom nick lidstrom who granted is you know one of the best defenseman ever to play the game. But again, it was, it was Lidstrom and Murphy, this finesse pairing that you wouldn't have anticipated. And yet that's who, that's who he threw out against that line and it worked. And um, so as they got, you know, they won both games in Philadelphia, teams don't come down, come back from a, a deficit, an OT deficit when they're heading on the road typically. But um, once they won game three in a route, then you knew it was just a matter of time. And so that day of the game, I just, I just remember you know, everybody's got brooms, you know, headed to the game with brooms. And uh, it was a sunny day, beautiful day. And, and the town was just ready to explode in celebration. And yet you had Scotty still trying to figure out, like, how to motivate his team or make sure it didn't have a letdown or, or make sure that it ended that night. And and uh, and it was. It was kind of a dicey game. but um, But they did manage to pull it off. You know, my dad was uh, my dad was at this game, and he tells me stories all the time about walking to the arena, seeing those brooms. Uh, he said that yeah. somebody offered him and my brother on the way in a thousand dollars for oh, their gosh. tickets. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, um, you know, it, it, but just that kind of speaks to how starved these fans were mm-hmm. for a championship. Yeah. And I'm uh, and you talk about what the uh, you know what the atmosphere looks like outside of the place, but I mean, what are some of the most memorable sights and sounds? Maybe not even just from Joe Louis Arena, but you know, from across the entire city. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, it was. You're right. It was, I mean, they were starved is the right way to put it because, you know, look, 42 years is a long time. But also those first round playoff exits in the, you know, 93, 94. And you mentioned Heisman was the captain who just couldn't get it done. Is You know, he has stories he'd tell after the fact. I still remember the post-game interview with him where he's telling stories about, you know, sitting at the blackjack table at, at the casino in Windsor and, people leaving the table saying, oh, there's no luck at this table because Eisenman was sitting at the table. And you think about that now in hindsight, it's just laughable. But yeah, I mean, he was, he was the captain of the team that choked, you know, and, and that was sort of, he was a star. He was a great player, um, you know, up there with the likes of, you know, some of his contemporaries, you know, the Lemuse and Gretzky's in terms of scoring and points, but he hadn't won the cup and really hadn't hadn't sealed the deal but yeah no that day it was it was a, you could feel a building and then in the in the building I mean that's as it's as sort of buzzing as I've ever been in one of the arenas in Detroit for sure um and yet it was this game you know the first period was tense and nobody I think uh was it Lidstrom that scored late in the first period really mm-hmm. maybe last minute of the first period to finally sort of that was a release right there and then you thought okay and then midway through the second period, Darren McCarty was, you know, and he had done this, he would do this a few times in his career where, I mean, he's not a goal, he's not a big time goal scorer. He's a grinder, um, a fighter, um, certainly a talented player, a talented forward. Um, but he, this deke on, I think it was Yanni Ninema, it's the one-on-one just almost puts him on his knees as he goes around him to score on Ron Hextall to make it two nothing. And the best part about that was, I mean, in addition to the fact for the wings, it, it pretty much sealed the game. This is midway through the second period, but it sealed the game. But the best part was that Ken Cal, the, the, the Red Wings radio play-by-play man still today. Um, but he was in probably his second year doing that um, after Bruce Martin, who had been the voice of, the Red Wings for so many years. Um, he, Ken Cow, who idolized Bruce Martin, invited him to come for that game four and had him broadcast the second period with Paul Woods. So it was Bruce Martin after all those years because he had never obviously had a chance to, to call a Stanley Cup winner. Um, he got he was in the booth on the mic with Paul Woods and he got to call that, that goal, the, the cup-clinching goal that turned out because of the flyer scored at the end of the game McCarty's goal and so that was that was a cool moment um among you know a million cool moments from that final game yeah and I I've actually never heard of that I I would love to go back and uh check out that call but one of my favorite memories you know as somebody who has only watched this moment through highlights and YouTube and stuff like that is Gary Thorne's call and like between this goal And, you know, the Iserman goal uh, in 95 against the Blues. Uh, first off, I mean, just as a side note, they really don't make hockey broadcasts like they used to. Uh, <laughs> no. yeah. I, I don't know if it's like the, where they had the microphones, but like, I, I mean, that building was ready to go from jump. It was, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, no, it was. It was. And just so. It was, I mean, it was. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. Yeah, it was just the building itself just. It was perfect for that scene. Um, this old barn, you know, one of the oldest arenas in, in the league, um, with you know all that, all those disappointments that had played out before those fans and on that same ice. There it was. Um, everybody was there, ready to just erupt, and they did. 
And I think one of the things, you know, we talk a lot about on this podcast about, uh, you know, things that we miss about the Red Wings being a contender that you don't necessarily realize you get to miss. And there's just so much that goes into, uh, you know, remembering these Red Wings, even like when it comes down to like the little stuff, like when they would go on the power play and the that used to be like fear invoking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, you're right. It's those, all those little things. And, um, you know, and it, and it's also just a function of that sport and that Stanley cup playoffs, because it, it is such a long journey to get to that point. I mean, it's two months long of games, you know, essentially every, every other night. Um, and for the player, I mean, I still remember Vladimir Konstantinov, just kept saying over and over again, that was the hardest thing he'd ever done in his life. And this, you're listening to guys who defected guys who went yeah. I mean, the way he was able to just get to the, you know, the things they had to do just to get him out of the Soviet, you know, Soviet union, former Soviet union to, to the U S let alone to that, you know, point in his career. And to hear those guys talk about the Stanley cup, the, you know, the Russian five to hear the, and to see the emotion actually in their faces as yeah. they talked about these things. I mean, cause that was always the, you know, the other part of that narrative, the sort of Don Cherry fueled part of that narrative that the Russians didn't care about the cup and, and the Europeans didn't care about the cup. And here was this team that certainly wouldn't have been there without those, the Russian five or without Nick Lidstrom and, you know, um, and to see how much it meant to them, you know, it, that part, resonated too you know i think and it, that that was you know like to mike Ilch's credit and jimmy devilano i mean they they didn't believe that and they thought that was bunk too and, and they seized an opportunity you know years before that to to bring those guys in and to go to some amazing lengths to get those guys um you know sergey fedorov and konstantinov and then scotty bowman bringing slava fatisov along those kind of things to see it all come together and, and that team, you know, it was, an, it was an odd collection of of players and talented players. Um, was a really odd coach, but it, you know, it all came together. Right, and I think top to bottom, like the only thing that I can maybe think of off the top of my head, uh, and obviously, you know, we haven't had a, a ton of championship teams uh, around these parts over the years, but I mean, when you when you look at this team, I don't know if there's a, a cast of characters. And that's, that's, mm-hmm. that's specifically important to me, the cast of characters that were more beloved by fans. You know, I would put the 04 Pistons maybe secondary in that category, but I yeah. think that the time that the Red Wings championship came, uh, it, it just meant so much. And those guys were, yeah. I, I would argue, probably the most beloved championship team in Red Wings or in, but, in Detroit yeah, sports no. history in a long time. Yeah, I mean, the 68 Tigers and the 84 Tigers certainly are up there as well. But mm-hmm. um, you're right. It, it, part of it, again, is because of the, you know, you get a chance to know these guys. I mean, hockey and hockey players by nature are, are a pretty, you know, easy to approachable group and sort of an open book. And, um, and in this town, there's certainly a love affair with that franchise and that team and it goes all the way back to some of the greats of the game um but yeah no i mean over two months you got to see those guys day in and day out and hear from those guys and read about those guys and um and you had you had different groups i mean it was 
you had this young sort of brat pack, I called them at the time, you know, the McCarty and Draper and Malty and um, Chris Osgood and um, Marty LaPointe, the young guys who were, you know, they, they were certainly out and about in town, shall we say, and they certainly <laughs> were after the cup. Um, just, you know, they, I mean, they, those guys, I mean, Draper and McCarty, those, those guys, they all lived at the riverfront apartments and hopped the fence to, to go to practice, you know, every, yeah. every day. And, you know, so it wasn't, it was, you had that, and then you had that collection of, you know, veteran players, you know, um, obviously some have been here a long time, some were who are newer. I mean, Brendan Channing comes along and was really one of the final pieces to make that all work. And, um, but yeah, it was just a, an eclectic group when you put them all together. And then you had that coach who just found ways to, you know, as the great coaches do mold them into one, you know, whether it was hatred of him or, or wanting to prove him wrong or any of those sort of things, he found ways to push the right buttons to get those guys all to play at a level they hadn't been able to until that point. Uh, after McCarty's goal, uh, it felt like there was an abnormally long time before that next face off, which I, I, and I don't know, you know, it, Gary Thorne on the broadcast, he goes, the celebration has begun rightly or yeah. wrongly. It has begun. <laughs> yeah. What talk to me about this celebration, because I am convinced I'll never see anything like it. Well, and that's the thing. So, it, you know, as, as, the inevitable is approaching. Then they score that goal. The Flyers score that goal late in the game. Um, yeah. And <laughs> it's, I mean, speaking as a, a writer who's in the press box tapping away, you know, you know this, how this goes. You're thinking, oh my God, don't, no, please. Yeah. <laughs> don't let, you know, this one can't go to overtime, can yes. it? I mean, you know, and there's, you know, front pages that are going to be handed out and everything else that goes along with the championship, you know, from our perspective is, is hanging in the balance there. And the players felt it too. I mean, they were, it was a desperate final, you know, shift or two there. Um, I remember Lindstrom talking about just how desperately you're just trying to keep the puck in the corner. And uh, I think it, I think maybe at the very end, and I have to go back and watch this because I haven't watched it in quite a while, but I think Konstantinov maybe falls on the puck at the end in the corner just to sort of run out the clock. But I mean, it's it's sort of a miracle on ice kind of finish there. It's just, and then you know, sticks and gloves and guys who just don't know how to react. I mean, they had thought about it all all day and all probably all week, and um, and they just it was just pure joy as they erupted, and and nobody was going to leave that arena, uh, fans. You know, obviously, the Stanley Cup, you have the, the post-game ceremony. That's such a huge part of the tradition of the game. But nobody was going to leave that arena until they were forced to. And, you know, Eisman gets the cup and, and hands it to Mike Illich, which was certainly fitting. Um, and then it goes down on the, down the line. And those guys, you know, one, it's just – that's the beauty of that celebration, that, that Stanley Cup celebration is that just each guy gets the cup and, and – and, it brings to mind the story that each one of them has. And, and so, you know, it was just an amazing, in that locker room never felt a, or seen a more hot, sweaty, cramped <laughs> quarters, you know, <laughs> um, and just, you know, you go around from, you know, and each guy is just pouring out, you know, streams of consciousness, you know, thoughts about what it means and whether it's Eisman telling some of those stories or 
um, Sergey Sergey Fedorov's there. Anna Kornikova's over on the other side of the locker room, which is a whole other story that <laughs> people are you know fixated on. And yeah. uh, McCarty and Draper. I mean that just that bond right there between those two guys, best friends. You know that a year earlier, you know the season had ended with Draper's you know face smashed in. Um, and and everything that that followed that, you know, McCarty battled his own demons. That's came to a head that summer before with his addiction issues, and you know, just all those things um, are just percolating around. And then, meanwhile, you've got you know everybody you can imagine is in there. Jeff Daniels is in there. Alto Reed, the saxophone, <laughs> you know, all those guys. Right. Um, and it just went on and on and on. And I still remember Eisman walking out of there with that cup putting it in the seat of his car and I don't know what time it was three, four in the morning. And then the party was just moving on elsewhere. Cause those guys did not sleep for, you know, days. <laughs> um, and I, the, the other part about the Stanley cup and, and especially in this town, um, I bet you could find a million people that came across the Stanley cup in the weeks and months that followed, you know, that, it just was one summer long party. Now it was interrupted just tragically by the, the limousine accident a week after. But, yeah, sure. Um, just, you know, just everybody shared in that championship almost literally because yeah, the cup was everywhere that summer and um, there were a lot of beers um, consumed out of that cup by a lot of just <laughs> folks who happened to be at the bar at the post or wherever uh, Kobo Joe's, wherever it was. Um, you know, the night that it showed up with whoever was dragging it behind him. And that's got to be one of the things that has, you know, left uh, your, I guess, imprinted such a lasting impact on that championship. The Red Wings obviously go on to win four over the next 12 or 11, 12 years. Uh, but that, you know, to me is something that I look back at. And when I read stories, when I talk to people like you, it feels like, you know, uh, Next to the 84 Tigers and 68 Tigers and the 04 Pistons, that was just such a, a city-wide championship. But, you know, what outside of maybe the things you mentioned already is just a, a memory that you have that, you know, is, is one of those things where you can kind of look back and say to yourself, I cannot believe that I got to to witness that or hear that. Or <laughs> Yeah, no, there, there's lots – there are lots of things like that. And it's just the um, – you know, the bond everybody feels when a city wins a championship, everybody feels like they're a part of it, whether they are or not, you know, and, um, but they're also that, that one, you know, it just sort of connected, um, connected eras and, and, and sort of connected, reconnected a city, you know, and a team to what it remembered, I guess, if you will. And, and I actually, the one guy I always think of, I don't know why I always think of, um, He's since passed away. Wally Crossman was the, uh, um, he was the dressing room assistant, old retired guy. Um, I mean, he was, gosh, he was in his eighties at the time, probably. I think he was born in like 1910. I don't, he was this little old guy. I mean, everybody who's watched the games, you'd remember him because you'd see his face on the bench and, um, they called him the link. I remember John Wharton, the trainer at the time, he used to call him the link because he was, um, he had started, uh, I, yeah, he had started, I think his stick boy in like 1940. So wow. he had been there for all those teams, um, 
I mean, I think he got the job. I'm maybe remembering some of this wrong, but I think I think he got the job because the guy who had the job before him went off to World War II, and so okay. he became the stick boy. <laughs> he became the stick boy probably about 1940 or something, and uh, and then was there for all those Stanley Cups with Gordy and um, Ted Lindsay and 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 the rest, you know, in the 50s, and and had stayed on ever since, and just you know. Um, you know, it was, that was his job. And so he was adored, um, by all of those guys. And, um, he hadn't gotten a ring for before when they had won because, but I think somebody had made him one, maybe one of the season tickets, like a car dealer in town had made him a special ring, mm-hmm. but, and he initially was, I remember he was initially left off the list for Stanley cup rings and Ken Holland made sure, I think it was Ken Holland made sure he got one. Um, and so they, I remember they had, you know, the, then that next year when they had the Stanley cup and I remember talking to him quite a bit about just sort of his story. And, um, and I didn't know, I knew some of it, but I didn't know all of it, but then, it, you know, it just kind of brings it all home. That here's a guy who'd been there, you know, 50 plus years. And, and that's been, you start to remember like the tradition of that organization and everything that came before that. And the fact that it sort of just come not full circle, but it sort of connected, you know, those eras of, of championship hockey and championships for this town together. Um, I th- that one sticks out because I, I distinctly remember running him, into him as I'm on my way into the, you know, scrambling to get into the locker room after the game. And there's, there's little Wally Crossman just <laughs> a great name be, and, you So know, 1940s. He, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Isn't it? Yeah. He was, and he was just, he was hilarious. And, uh, you know, he's just, so that was, um, that's one of those, you know, those faces. And, and again, that's a hockey sort of thing too. You just got all these familiar faces is kind mm-hmm. of part of the, the, the sort of charm and, and everything with that sport is just, you know, every every day at the rink there's just those same familiar faces and and the players will talk about that too i mean that was one of the things people always talked about at the end of for the joe was just yeah i'm gonna miss this place not because of the you know not because of the buildings <laughs> was a kind of a dump but it because of the faces you know because of the memories and because of just the everyday you know faces you saw that um you know you knew those players knew when they turned around the bench would be the same guy that had been sitting there for 30 years or whatever, you know, those sort of things. And yeah. so, yeah, at the end, you, that's the stuff that sort of still lingers with you. Some of those just random memories like that, I guess. Well, uh, hopefully it's not too much longer until we can start <laughs> creating some more of those memories. Unfortunately, uh, I think it's going to be at least a, a few more years. Uh, until yeah, I think so. I would settle to- for just a, just a playoff series at this point. I think uh, most people would too. Yeah, I would say like I would say like just playing meaningful games in March or February. I think <laughs> okay, that we'll would be sweet. Yeah, yeah right. we'll we'll start there, and then we'll talk about yeah. playoffs and you know the, later right. on down the road. But uh, John, right. thank you so much for for taking the time to hop on today. It was a, a really nice time. I, I was going to say taking a trip down memory lane, but I, I don't remember any of it. Frankly, I was less than a year old. Uh, but it was nice to be able to to hear some firsthand experiences and, and we definitely appreciate sure. your time. No problem. Thanks, Nolan. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Real quick before you go, where can people find you uh, on Twitter? Uh, John Neo, J-O-H-N-N-I-Y-O is my 
username on Twitter. Excellent. And then go be, uh, be sure to make, uh, be sure to read his columns at debtnews.com or in print on newsstands. He's got a great one uh, about the, you know, just kind of the, where youth sports stands as it is now in, in, in the face of this pandemic that uh, I think is definitely well worth your time. But John, thank you so much again. And we'll see you next time. All right. Thanks, Nolan. We'll see you. By the way, if you haven't done so already, be sure to check out the Locked On NHL podcast. They got some great stuff going on over there. Uh, recently, they started breaking down the all-time NHL numbers, starting with 1 through 10, and it was an exciting listen. I'm sure that's something that they'll continue going forward, so be sure to pop on over to check that out. We will see you guys tomorrow.